Congregation, let's first read together of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16, on page 44. Questions 40 through 44. Question 40. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Answer, because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. 41. Why was he also buried? Answer, thereby to prove that he was really dead. 42. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and the passage into eternal life. Question 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross. And so that by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and 44, why is there added, he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptations, I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged, during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. So far. Concerning Christ's death. The theme for this evening, concerning Christ's death, with the help of the Lord. Five thoughts. The necessity of Christ's death, secondly, the proof of his death, in the third place, his meaning for our death, for the beneficial death of Christ, and five, more than death. So concerning Christ's death, the necessity of Christ's death, proof of his death, the, the meaning of his death for us, the beneficial death of Christ, and more than death. Congregation, is death something that belongs to nature? Can we say, of course, people need to die. Everyone dies. Has always been that way. Or is there something of a strange element, strange element in our life that was... Not, that was absent before. Is it something that was 
added to creation. Well, we know that death is inevitable, that he cannot escape it, and we know that the Bible says it is appointed to man wants to die, but yet death was not original. Death is kind of new. The average age of people is increasing. In Iceland, the average death, the average age is 80 of men and 83 of women. That's quite something. So they have been able to extend the life a little bit, but yet we all must die. Death is new, death is not given in creation. The death of plants was, plants died before the fall, but no animals, no animals with blood, no people. And therefore, death is kind of new. As you know, some believe that this world and the universe is the result of an almost infinite process of evolution. And many believe that death has always been part of life. To them, death is just normal. Not a punishment, not ugly, but an old given. And people laugh about death and celebrate even death. Medical aid in dying is accepted and funerals are becoming parties. No wonder that people don't have many, many impressions anymore about death, the separation of soul and body. But our instructor, Zechariah Jerzinis, wants to know why Christ had to die. And he explains that death is a consequence of sin and that God must punish sin and that death is the only answer. We had a funeral this week, right? I spoke in Psalm 90. Let me quote this from the same psalm. For we are consumed by thine anger and by thy wrath we are troubled. Though I set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance, who know the power of thine anger, even according to thy wrath, to the fear, so is thy wrath. So in the Bible, death is viewed as a curse. Dying is not a blessing in itself, and funerals remain sobering. The Bible speaks about the snares of death and of being brought into the dust of death. And the Bible speaks about the valley of death and the sorrows of death. And the Lord Jesus had to experience that death. He had to go through it. He had to experience it himself. He had to be humble to death. As low as a human can go, Lord Jesus didn't only accept the human nature. He wanted to die in it. He came in Bethlehem. And was the one that he came, but he came not to live. Only he came to die. 
He tasted death, it says. He bowed his head, yielded up the ghost. He was also certified that he was dead. He did not fake it. He was also buried to confirm that. And the Lord prevented his body to decay. Thou shalt not leave my soul in hell. So no decay, but he was really dead. The death of the Lord Jesus is crucial in the Bible. It's crucial in baptism. It's crucial in the Lord's Supper. It's crucial in the Gospel. You know these young people? You know John 10, don't you? About the Good Shepherd? Why was the Good Shepherd such a good shepherd? Because he went after the sheep? Because he threw it on his shoulder? No. Something else. What is it? Why was the Good Shepherd such an extremely good shepherd? I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Giveth his life. Not just an example. He didn't only get them and carry them, he, he died for them. 4, Romans 5, 6, For when yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. I said in a prayer already, right? That ungodly ones may be pricked in their hearts tonight. But they are all ungodly. And the Lord Jesus came to save the lost ones. Not the good ones, the lost ones. And he came in due time to die for the ungodly. May he didn't give hope tonight. Maybe you feel an ungodly one. Say, I, I, I'm not godly, I'm ungodly. I know that for sure. Well, Christ also saves ungodly ones. Or took it in his five. And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So the Lord Jesus died and for that reason is also glorified. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Why not? He gives life by his death. So punishment and sin must match. At home too, in school too, in society as well. So a judge, for example, needs to find out how serious the crime is and then match that with the punishment. Imprisonment or a fine, and he has to just match it up. That is reasonable and fair. Also parents and the discipline children, they need to not overdo it, not underdo it, but do it something that is matching the crime, matching the situation. And so the Lord is righteous and just 
and fair and always finds the right thing to match the crime. And so in God's view, the death of Jesus was the fairest, most just thing he could possibly do. See? Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, the just the fairness and the truth is so true, so trustworthy, that satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. So look at the cross. You see what death is. What death has done. How serious the Lord takes it. It's not just something trivial. It's not just a mistake. It is least majesty. It is high treason. And that's why the Lord must answer with death. The day that the evil of thou shalt surely die. There's no other way. The Lord cannot be unjust. So the necessity of Christ's death was the first one. Let's go to the second one, the short one. Proof of Christ's death. Nicodemus, you remember him, right? From the Bible, the night disciple, Nicodemus and his friend Joseph of Arimathea approached Pilate and they asked if they could have the body of their Savior, of the Lord Jesus. And Pilate gave them permission and the soldiers broke the bones of the thieves but not of Jesus. But they put a spear in his side, and blood and water came out. And it was clear, so clear, they had, they had no doubt about it. He had died. So they took him gently from the cross and wrapped him in grave clothes and sprinkled balm in there. And they also brought his body to the sepulcher of Joseph Arimathea and lay him in there. If the Lord Jesus would have been alive yet, they would have noticed, not? He would have blinked. He would have sighed. He would have had a heartbeat. But it was absolutely clear there was nothing of that. And his burial proves that he was really dead. Not unconscious, not asleep, not sedated, but no heartbeat, no breathing. It was over. Now talking about death and talking about the burial, in different cultures they deal differently with funerals. I've been in Irunjaya, and the Danis, the Dani, the Dani tribe smokes people. And I've seen smoke person there. And the Yalis, I believe, 
hang dead people into a high tree until nothing is left. And they just let it sit there. And other cultures, they burn the dead. That is all very pagan, isn't it? And there's not so much respect for the body. So we believe that we should respect the body of everyone. Also, funeral directors, when they care for the body, they should do it gently and respectfully because the body is even in the Bible a part of the body of Christ. So funeral directors and caretakers have quite a responsibility. And why was Christ then buried? And why are we in favor of burying our dead? Well, we would like to follow Christ and do the same thing as he would have done. And as Christ was willing to be buried, we say, let us go that same route. But there's also something behind it. Lord Jesus explained that. He explained why he wanted to die and why he wanted to be buried. Here it is in 1 Corinthians 15. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown like a seed. It's sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised in spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. See? So the Lord Jesus wants us to know and to remember at the funeral that this body is buried in the soul as a seed. And that that seed will someday germinate again. And that it will be alive, that it will be sea life again. So a burial points to the resurrection. Soul in weakness, raised in power. And when you're on the, on, on the cemetery, you often think about that, right? You just after the funeral or before, a day after, you go to the funeral and see the stone of a beloved one. You see all those graves. And you can't help but think, what will that be on the last day? Now those graves are opened. And all the people rise from the dead, being raised by Christ. This is going to happen to all people, not only to the believers. To our people, some raised to this glory and some raised to their eternal condemnation of the body included. So we have a never-dying soul, right? We say it so often, we hear it often, a never-dying soul, right? But we also have a never-quitting, never-stopping body. Our bodies are dying, they are buried, they decay, but that's not the end. The bodies will be resurrected. And like the body of Christ, 
So that is why we respect the burial. I think that's what we should do. But yes, also the unsaved will have the bodies returned to them. But not to live on the earth, but to be cast into the lake of brimstone and fire, which is the second death. You know this, right? Heaven is not the best. Heaven is not the best. It's something better than heaven. Because the bodies are not in heaven, right? But after the resurrection, the bodies will live. And the soul will find the body. And God's people will be alive again and be themselves again. So there's more than going to heaven. That will be a resurrection and then God's people have a place on the new earth. Under the new heaven. But something similar is true for hell, right? Also the unsaved will rise from the dead. And they will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. So there is a hell and after the hell, another hell. And hell for the soul and the body. So think about that, please. So much is at stake. We must live this life someday. And we may feel so invincible. We are not invincible. It's coming. Repeat. Repeat it for yourself, it is coming. All things he below are shadows. And we must appear before the Lord and give account for every word that we have spoken, every idle word we have spoken. Brings to the third part the meaning for our death. You know that Christ, this is not new, you know that Christ was a substitute children, substitute, right? So he takes the place of his dear ones. He says, just move away. I take the place. And you take my place. Simply said. So Christ says, let me be forsaken. So you don't need to be forsaken. And Christ said, let me be thirsty. He said, I don't want you to thirst. Let me receive the stripes. And you may receive the healing. We agree with that. However, is there one exception, maybe? One, one, one exception? Is it also true that God's children then don't need to die? This guy says, I die, so you don't need to die. It will be similar, right? Christ thirsty, so that they don't be thirsty. Christ forsaken, so they don't, don't, need, don't need to be forsaken. And Christ died, so they don't have to die. They just keep living. Apparently not. So why? Why do God's people need to die? 
is Christ died for them. Well, it is true God's children must die as well. But does it make any difference then if we know the Lord or not? Yes, it makes all the difference because their death looks the same but it's vastly different. I dare to say that it could not be more different. The death of a child's Lord and the death of an unconverted so different. Absolutely different. Two doors can be exactly the same. Size and color and woodwork. But but behind the door. That makes all the difference, right? So it's possible that two doors are exactly the same, and behind one door is bliss, and behind the other door is chaos and death. So Christ died, and he also made death different. For his people. It's still death. It's still a consequence of sin. But it is not the same. It is actually not the satisfaction for our sins. It's only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. So sin is over. Behind that one door, there's no sin anymore. It has been abolished, right? You have heard about the abolishment of slavery. Slavery was banned. Abolishment of slavery. So behind this door is the abolishment of sin. There is no sin anymore. So for God's people, that door opens and closes, and they are in, and they have no sin any longer. They don't struggle anymore. And they experience also eternal life. What a contrast. Behind the first door is joy. Behind the other door is sorrow. The first opens and we see people eating. And behind the other door is people being hungry. When someone is dying... We enter the door of death. But the door opens and closes quickly and we don't see what's behind there. Eternal life or eternal death. Reverend Lemang used a peculiar expression. He said some people are sitting with their backs against the door of heaven. And when the door opens, they fall backwards. What did he mean with that? He meant that some people, some of God's people, they don't have assurance. They don't, they're not so sure of salvation. They fear that. And they fall unexpectedly backwards into it. And they live and are in heaven. Reverend May himself was also very afraid of that. 
was also a part of his prayer to die in peace, and he did. Suddenly, he was taken away. So God children must die as well, but it is a different death. All others will be robbed from all they were allowed to use and they'll live forever poor. So the poor man of Lazarus was rich and the rich man became poor. Same type door, but a different outcome. Isaiah 65 also mentions that stark contrast. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but he shall cry for soul of heart and shall howl for vexation of spirit. You shall howl. You shall cry for sorrow. You shall be ashamed. See? Who in the Bible spoke the most of hell? Who spoke the most of it? Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Moses, or... Peter of power, oh, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus spoke most of all times, of all the Bible writers, about death and hell. To just shake people up, to threaten people, to also draw people in. So death looks the same, but it is different. Proverbs 14, the wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous has hope in his death. The righteous hope, not let his hope, maybe is a chance. No, he is hoping the Christian hope. He has that expectation. But the righteous has hope in his death. came to pass that the angel that, 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 that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham far off and Lazarus in his bosom. See, this the Lord Jesus' parable. If it is parable. Maybe it is not. Because in parables, the main figures have no name. And here it is about Lazarus, it's a name. So maybe it is not really a parable, but just more real. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. <clears throat> I remember one of my colleagues in Holland, pastor, was asked to serve a couple months on the mission field. 
He was also, I believe, in the 60s. And he looked up against it, and he laid for the Lord. And he was wondering what the, what the Lord's will was. And he, he, he saw this verse. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he accepted the invitation and he went to Nigeria. And the time he was there, he died. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If Christ is your life, is he? Is Christ your life? What is the life of a bird? The air likes to fly. This is life. It does not like to be in a cage. What is life for a fish? To just swim. What is the life of a Christian? Christ. And if that's right, if, if, you, if you may have a relationship with him, if you have a bond with him, if there is that walking with him, if there is that talking to him, that listening to him, if he's not a stranger for us, then life will, or death will be gained. Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. See, the same death is to the one a three punishment and for the other a passage into eternal life. Brings you to the next one, the fourth, beneficial death of Christ. Question 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? that by virtue thereof our old man is crucified. Virtue. What is virtue? I thought about it and I did not remember. I had to look it up. Now I've preached so many times on this. And what does, does it mean? By virtue of. By virtue of apparently means that it is something that helps, something that benefits, something that comforts, so that by the advantage of, by the value of it, by the comfort of it, my old man is crucified. This is about sanctification, right? Do you remember the difference between justification and sanctification? We talk about it all the time. 
catechism class and confession class. So I think it's important. There is not just theology for the interest nowadays. It's important. So, very simply, forgiveness does not take place in you. Forgiveness does not take place in you. Forgiveness is not something in your heart. Forgiveness is something outside of you, between the Lord and you. He forgives you. That's something happening outside of you. It's the relationship of you with the Lord. Justification. Forgiveness. He's outside of you. But of course, something needs to change in you as well. And that is sanctification. Justification, forgiveness of sin is always perfect. Right? Nobody can be forgiven for 80%. Nobody can be forgiven for 99%. Nobody can be forgiven for 1%. You can be forgiven for 100% or nothing or zero. It's everything or nothing. So the Lord Jesus died and he died for the forgiveness of sins of his people. 100% forgiveness. But he also came to change their heart. And they do not become perfect on the earth. They don't. So they still have to fight against sin. They still have that old man in them. That old man that doesn't want to work together. That is hostile. The old man who does not like the Lord. Does not love the Lord. Sanctification takes the pollution away. The power of sin away. So sin does not reign anymore. But justification takes the guilt away. And everything. Now this question is about sanctification. About something changing in, in you. Right? So what further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of the cross of Jesus that a virtue of our old man inside is crucified, dead and buried with him that so the corrupt inclination of the flesh in my heart may no more reign in us, the inner but that we may offer ourselves unto the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Romans 6, verse 12, confirms this. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the luster of. So the Lord Jesus died to forgive sins, and the Lord Jesus died to change people. 
that is the extra benefit we see. That is the extra benefit we see from the sacrifice and death of Jesus. We call it the evangelical sanctification. It's not so that God's people pay the Lord back. Say, Lord, it's been so good, so that now I would like to do something for thee. No. God children spontaneously do that. And God children are still waging a war. And they try to kill the old man. They are a new person. But the old person is alive yet. For if we live after the flesh, it is that inside man ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So God's people are still fighting. And mortifying. Mortifying means killing. Today, to modify is something else. But in the olden days, modify means to make death, to kill. So the old man in God's children is dead and needs to be killed. You say, well, what is now? Is the old man dead or not? In principle, in a sense, yes. In a sense, no. Mortify, therefore, the members which are upon earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil, concupiscence, and covetousness. Don't forget the last one. Covetousness, which is idolatry, it says. So mortify. But I read in Romans 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. So it's kind of difficult. It shows two aspects of the sanctification in the hearts of those people. It shows that the Lord has changed their hearts, that the Lord has done a perfect work, that they are dead in Christ, that they are for his account, and that they have his sanctification, and therefore they must sanctify themselves. Therefore they must mortify the old body. And the important is also that expression with him. Crucified, dead, and buried with him. What do you make of that? Being buried and crucified with him. Well, you may want to look it up in the concordance. With him, it is quite often to be found in the Bible. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, 
but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. With him. I don't like the example, but it might make a point. An expecting mother died in an accident, and the baby died as well. So the baby died with the mother. That happened on the cross. Christ was crucified, and the church was in him. He was the head of the church. He was the body of the church. He had the church in him. So on the cross, Christ died. And the church died as well, in a sense, with him. With him. I have crucified Christ. And so the church raised with him. And also is a, is a, is a, is a, is a with him. And sitting with him. Look at that. It is precious. With him and also the expression in him. Very similar. So Christ died, not in accident, but was crucified, and his children died with him. Died with him. So the old man is dead. And therefore God's children need to mortify the old man. By virtue of death of Christ, the believers begin to sacrifice themselves, to offer themselves, to dedicate themselves unto God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that is the consequence of that work, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. See? And there is maybe a sin in your life, a bosom sin. What is it? You know. You have to fight that sin and mortify it and kill it if you can. But not in your own strength. Look upon that cross. Think of the Lord Jesus' work and arm yourself in holy meditation. Picture the cross. Every time that sin shows itself and sticks out its ugly head, consider the crucifixion. Mortify, because in Christ, this life, or do you not fight to do it fight? Do you rather die in your sins? Young friends, do you want to be caught being a friend of sin? If, the, if you're a friend of sin, and a friend of the world, and the Lord finds you there, it's over. You lose everything. You cannot be a friend of the sin. You you can be perfect? I know. Though it's not saying you need to be perfect. Ungodly people can go to heaven, but not people that love sin. Brings to the last thought. 
congregation. We are going over the 12 articles of faith, right? And it states that the Lord Jesus descended into hell. Really? Have you heard it before? Did the Lord Jesus go to hell? What did he do there? Who did he, who did he meet with? Why is it added? He descended into hell. Some think that the Lord Jesus really went there. And they quote a text from 1 Peter 3. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. It's that. So some say the Lord Jesus has been in the prison. That says, that says in 1 Peter 3.19. But it cannot mean that Christ was in hell. The best explanation of that difficult text is probably that Christ presents himself in the preaching of Noah unto them that are now in prison. Right? So the people Noah spoke to are in hell. But at that time he spoke to them. So again, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits who are now in prison. For sure that does not refer to a purgatory, a pre-portal of hell where God's people need to be punished for their weaknesses before they can go to heaven. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, right? The purgatory. So before you go to heaven, you first have to burn off a few more sins. What does it mean then? He descended into hell. Let's look at Psalm 16. We have read this evening. I read in verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And the apostle Peter quotes that text in Acts 2. He's seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. His soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. So apparently, the Apostle Peter says, Psalm 16 talks about the grave, talks about the resurrection. He went, he, he descended into hell, means that he woke up out of hell. Psalm 16, that thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy land to see corruption, in, in, in the grave. So some of our reformed forefathers say, you know what? Descend into hell. This means that he was in the grave. But John Calvin has a different take on that. John Calvin says, listen, 12 articles, very concise, very brief, no repetition, and you have the that he was buried 
and descend into hell, and that would make me insane? He said, I cannot accept that. That must mean something else. And he said, after all the things that the Lord Jesus had mentioned, that he was conceived and born and suffered and died and crucified and rose again and ascended, he must now summarize what has been spoken about so far. He summarizes it. And in this article, he says, we look back at all the articles before and say, this is the summary. Why is it added he descended to hell that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hell's agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross. So Calvin says, descend into hell means hell's agonies his whole life. And I kind of agree with that. I can, I can see his point. So, descending to hell is not a new step. It is a summary of all the steps before. The totality of it. Christ descended in the abyss of being forsaken of hell's agonies during his entire life but mainly at the end. All the things we have mentioned, his sadness and loneliness and pain and inexpressible anguish and terrors and hell's agonies, he experienced them all on earth, all before he died. So, think about it. We may never say, my life on earth is a hell. Nobody has the right to say that. It is simply not true. It can be bad. It can be really bad. I'm sorry. But it cannot be as bad as the Lord Jesus. Because he took it all in. He knew no sin that was made to be sin. It says that I wholly comfort myself in this. That sounds a little suspicious, or not? I comfort myself in this. May you comfort yourself, I thought, as the Lord's work. Maybe people can comfort you. Are you comforting yourself? Yes. So God's people may comfort themselves. And they may remind themselves and tell themselves 
that they may be assured and wholly comfort themselves that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, tears, and health agonies, delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. Like David in Psalm 42 and 43, he is also comforting himself. Why thou so disquiet within me, hope thou in God. So God's people, comfort yourself with the Bible, with the Word, and remind yourself of the truth of it, and plead on it, saying to the Lord that he cannot lie. He's faithful. We also read it in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, about David. David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. So there's something, something to consider. So do you have expectation for the future? Are you also afraid of death? Are you petrified? Think about hell and all you may need to experience or seek your salvation in him who has experienced it all and yet has trusted in his God, in his Father. I may be assured, may the Lord give that assurance, and wholly comfort myself, not half, but wholly comfort myself, that my Lord Jesus Christ, is he not yours? Is he yours? That's an important part, right? Has he become yours by faith, by his inexpressible anguish, you cannot express it. It is far beyond our comprehension. Pains, terrors, hellish agonies, so the agonies, agonizing, fighting. He, he had it also in the Garden of Gethsemane. In which he was plunged during all his sufferings. He also has chosen that himself, was not against his will. But especially on the cross has delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. So the death of Christ is quite meaningful. It is a death that was necessary and was proof of the death. And we yet must die as well, but it's a different death. And Christ also affects the hard works in people to let them mortify the old nature. And he descended into hell to take all those horrible torments away. Amen.